Hey, 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 boy. What's good, man? Man, right here chilling, man. Can't call it. You ready to get at it? Hey, let's go. All right. Ready, set, go. Ready, set, go. Hey, all the fans out there, appreciate you tuning in. Appreciate you watching, going down the path, reliving these memories with me and Ra. And stay tuned, stay plugged in to Ready, Set, Go. And all the haters, y'all know what it is. Keep tuning in, too. True. We're going to go right to the uh, super juggernaut year, man. I think uh, this year probably has to be the most consistent year of your career of 9-7. We're going to go to 2015. Okay. All right. What was... Shoot, let's, let's, let's end 2014. What was 2014? What happened in 2014? 2014, which I had to be reminded about actually, was um, a year of being undefeated. Like, there was no person that beat me that year. I won every race. I actually won the Diamond League trophy. Again. <laughs> <laughs> I won in 13, 14, and 15. Oh, shoot. This is amazing. Yeah. So going into 14... Not being undefeated, going into the fall. I think this, at this point, you got to be ranked number one in the world. Yeah. Like, even though Bolt is still around, he's not competing as much, but he's around. You know how it is. When, when Bolt was around, it was like, even if you were ranked number one, it was always that slot with a question mark vibe, like, you're ranked number one right now, <laughs> but let's see how the end of the season goes. That, you know, that's how it is. Right. I, I, uh, they have a clip, and I don't even know if, if anybody else have the clip. I remember us speaking, um, talking throughout your fall in 15, um, about how your training was going. It was like, it's amazing or whatever. And I remember listening and everything like that. And I mean, every year you had a pretty solid year, but the point in that year where I know that I was like, this boy, it's going to be almost unstoppable. It was World Relays. <laughs> <laughs> you will never let this World I'm not, Relays I'm down, not, dog. because if people go back and watch this race, then they'll know, yeah, that, that, was, that was the nugget to tell you. Like Dion said, I'm coming. <laughs> I'm coming. But that takes somebody with a trained eye and a focus to see from television what I was what the world was in for and what speed and, and I was at. So, so the, if, for people watching, if you don't understand what I'm talking about, in 2015, the World Relays is in my country, the Bahamas, you know, big up to the Bahamas in Nassau. Um, they run in the four by two. Four by two is being ran at this point. April now. April. So usually people not in shape by that time. Yeah, they, this is early. Um, but even if you're not in shape, you're in, in relatively pretty all right shape to go ahead and sprint, right? USA drops the baton. I think uh, it was Curtis who was supposed to bring you the baton? Or was that? Isaiah brought the baton to Curtis, and they dropped the baton. Curtis picks it up. And he still runs. And he still runs. We're in dead last right now. Dead like dead flies. <laughs> He's literally probably 40 to 50 meters behind right now. Anybody else would have watched him drop the baton and just put their hands up and walk off the track. Justin is still in three-point stands 
because he sees the boys coming. It, we don't even know if he's disqualified or not, but Justin's still in three-point stands. He gets the baton and dead last. The camera pans around to the winners coming to the finish line. There's first, there's second. Justin is out of the frame. There's nobody else. Now, keep in mind, these are world-class runners. These ain't poop putts. These are 200 people that run the race. Justin gets third, pulling up the back end. I don't know what the split is, but if somebody could send me that split, that would definitely be helpful. But that's how I knew when he ran that leg, I said, boy, this boy is in shape. I mean, that was a magical off-season training year for me. So that was just a prelude to what was going to happen in 2015. So I'm glad you saw that. You got, you got the coaches out. <laughs> For someone to watch that from television and realize that to get third place when you're already 45 meters behind the rest of the field, who's last, whoever is, if it was eight teams on the track and we were in eighth place and seventh place was already 45 meters in front of me, I walked everyone down to get third place. That's, that's where we were. I mean, even when you watch it, if anybody put it up, you hear the announcer say, is that Justin Gatlin in third place? He was surprised because in your head, you're like, there's no way. There's no way. There's no way. There's no way. You're completely out of the camera frame. And the camera frame is maybe about 60 meters. So you're completely out of it and you run yourself into the camera frame for maybe 20 meters to go. So now, at this point, you said the fall was magical. I think Doha's after that. Doha's your first meetout. Doha's my first meetout. So I'll take you why, because a lot of people are going to think like, well, why was your fall season so magical? Because I looked at my 2015 campaign coming off an undefeated season and saying, I still have more to give. So I went into the fall training of 2015 and I want to do everything extra. So if we were supposed to pull sleds with 45-pound weights, I put two 45-pound weights on there. If we were supposed to do uh, three sets of uh, uh, 10 reps of something in the gym, I would do 30 reps for three sets. So I would do everything extra just to see where I was because I wanted – I wanted to build consistency. And the only way I was able to build consistency was to push my body to a whole different limit and see where I could be at. So my strength level was off the charts. I was strong. I was consistent. And I had the endurance behind me. Mm, first race. Take us through that. You land in Doha. A lot of people don't know that's, that's where you broke the first world record, 976. Yeah. 976. Yeah. So you you like Doha? I love Doha. Doha man. is a nice place for you. You like going back. When lose or draw, you always like going back. I <laughs> like going back. It's a different stadium now, <laughs> but when they when you when you compete in the old stadium, it wasn't like a high wall stadium. So it was like a low wall stadium all the way around. So the the seats only went up maybe six rows at that. So at night in Doha, it's already eighty five degrees. And then you have this nice little calm breeze that comes over the wall into the, into the stadium. 
and it gives you that sweet uh, allowable win of like around a 1.5 to maybe a 2.0. So you always going to get fast times. It's good. It's a good condition. I love Doha, man. Mm. So going into it, had a lot of good history there. And I was just hungry, man. I was, I was hungry to start the season. And uh, I remember being at that, that starting line. And I remember just repeating 9-7, 9-7, 7 If you watch the tape, I'm just like, you can see I'm saying something, but you can't really get it. 9-7, 9-7, 9-7. Run us to your mark. Get into the blocks. Set. Bah, gun goes off. Drive phase, murder them from the blocks. Come up, transition. By the time I'm like 10 meters before the, about 10 to 15 meters before the finish line, I try to get greedy and like go for a little bit more, right? Because I, I know I'm running good. And I, my hamstring grabs just a little bit. So I back off just a little bit. And I come across the line, clock says 9.73. So I was like, all right, we'd hear. And the crowd's like, ah. They're going crazy. Like, oh, this man done already PR'd his first race out. Oh, man, it's about to be crazy. So crazy. I, I, I remember that race. I remember that race that, 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 that was, you, you was definitely on fire. You ran that 9-7. What's that night like going back to the hotel with your coach? Uh, when you sit down, you eat, did you talk about anything? Did you, was he surprised? Did he know exactly what your training was dictating 9-7-3? Or maybe nine eight, but nine seven three. That's almost the American record at sixty nine. So, um, when you're a good coach, and you know this because you're a good coach, your athletes show you glimmers of greatness or fast times at practice. And with Dennis, he was great at that. He was able to say, "Okay, you're running this time at practice at these segments." So you should be at this time if we go into a race today. So knowing that, I prepared myself to say, we about to open up with a 9-7. I'm working my way to that. So when we did it, it was like mission accomplished. So I wasn't surprised. and He wasn't surprised. We just knew that everything we worked hard through the fall leading up to that moment, we were on track. What was dinner like when you get back to the hotel? Because you got to eat dinner. Everybody's in there. The meet's over. Might about to travel home, but they have to be talked because that had to be the highlight of the meet. Outside of Barsham jumping, <laughs> Barsham always jumping. Boy. Shout out to Shout Barsham. Out Barsham. <laughs> <laughs> What's gravity? Yeah. Um, you know, at that time, it was more like a, a, a like throwing the gauntlet down. So telling all the other athletes out there, like, damn, Justin Gatlin and dropped a 9-7 out the hole. Like, what's this season going to look like? So I think that same feeling I got or that same look I got when I first came back into the sport, it was kind of eerily the same. Like, when I walk into the dining room after running that fast, everybody was like, here <laughs> come this monster, dog. <laughs> he ready. This monster ready. Oh, man. Jeez. That... That happens, you feel like you're ready. You're like anticipating the season because you know the first meet, you have those jitters and everything. Now they're out because you're itching to compete at this point. 
You know, now you compete and you actually have a time on the books that's legal and you know, you know, how long did it take you to train for the next meet? Uh, what was the next meet that year, if you can remember? Oh, I remember the next meet. So I was supposed to go to China. I was supposed to go to, I think, to Beijing, the next race. But remember, I told you, like, between 15 to 10 meters before the finish line in Doha, that first race, my hamstring grabbed. So now I had this little strain. And you know, when you at peak performance, like you feel every little thing. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I went on with, I talked to my agent, I talked to my coach, and um, we decided to say, man, let's just, let's play it out. Let's still go to Beijing. Let's see how we feel. Let's be upfront and transparent with the meat promoter and tell him, look, after running that blistering time, you know, I got a little strain in my hamstring, but we have a couple of days to rest and get ready for um, the race in Beijing. Now, whatever transpired between <laughs> that point and leading up to the race, uh, I remember that I got word that we got kicked out the hotel and we was told that we had to go home. I was like, why? <laughs> he was like, well, you're here, but you ain't going to run. I, I said, we, we didn't never say we weren't going to run. We just saying what we feeling like, you know? So me being the person I am, I was like, fuck it. Let's ride. Back our shit up. Got in the car. We rode. I was like, at this point in time, I'm going to show whoever the powers to be that you made the, the worst mistake ever. So then the next race. I'm Where is this? The next race? Yeah. I think the next race was Rome. So I went over to Rome and I went over there pretty much by myself. Dennis ain't go. I don't even think Ronaldo went, my agent. And I'm just there. But I'm feeling so good, so confident. I know exactly how to warm myself up. I know exactly what I need to feel. I get in the blocks, gun goes off, probably one of the smoothest starts I ever had. And I drop another 9-7. I ran 9.75. Italians go crazy. <laughs> crazy. Um, then we went from there. We went on to the next meet. Dropped another 9.7. And then another 9.7 at that. That's what we talked about when we say consistency. So into this 9.7s, and we started to drop this 9.7s, how did the whole, and what is it if people don't understand what it is? The, the, what is that? So, um, I had, I have some fans that, that dubbed it calling ripping it, ripping the air, right? So it's like, and ripping the air. So that's the PG version. The real version is, I'm opening a can of whoop ass. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm on, I'm on, I'm un, unleashing the monster. So I'm ripping open the cage and I'm coming out. So that's what that was. That was my calling card. But but definitely through all those races, every time you did that, something sure enough good, monstrous (laughs) happened that year. Now there was a time in that year, if if I'm not correct, uh, where you were running, came through the line. No, you didn't even come through the line. Actually going through the lineup, going down the line with the camera. And you say something in the camera. I don't know exactly what you said, but you point like this and you say it. What did you say and who were you speaking to? 
<laughs> so it wasn't a lineup. It was after one of the races. Uh, I came across the line. I ran 9.7. I think it might have even been in Lausanne. So Lausanne was one of the, the later 9.7s that I ran. So for people at home to understand, well, how the hell you run all these 9.7s? It's because you establish, as a runner, you establish a rhythm. So you understand what it feels like to run a certain cadence. Uh, like a hurdler. That's why you see a lot of hurdlers like Grant and them, they'll run a certain rhythm and they'll keep that same rhythm. They know what it feels like until they get injured, until they have a setback and then they lose that rhythm then they got to regain that rhythm. So that's what it feels like to run nine sevens. It was just a rhythm. So in Lausanne was one of my biggest matchups of that season and one of my favorites because I had a race against Tyson and I had a race against Asafa at that point in time. Ooh. So... It's all these logistics that lead up to this race. And the logistics are what lane you want to be in. Do you want to be in the middle? Do you want to be sandwiched between them? Do you want to, uh, pause. <laughs> <laughs> so usually I'll pick a certain lane that I favored. But it, in that situation, Lazan track was getting repatched. So Dennis felt like, all right, we can't go in lane three because towards the end of the race, it's a different, it's a different surface. So if you're in a dog fight, I don't want you being a softer surface and then that's going to not pay you back. So we moved to a different lane. And uh, I remember that race so well because it was like, it was a challenge where I had someone who was a great starter in the Safa, had also a good transition. But then I had someone who had amazing closing speed in Tyson. So I had to figure out how to find that comfort zone of getting out on a sofa and holding him off, but not taxing myself enough to where I still had enough left in the tank to make sure that if Tyson came into the picture, I had something to battle him going into the finish line. So when I ran across the line and I ran 9-7 and everybody went crazy again, ah, he ran 9-7. I'm breaking like meat records everywhere I go. I look in the camera. It's the question you asked. And I said, where are you? And as soon as I said that, I stopped myself. I was like, that's not how I roll. I don't, I don't, I'm not cocky. I'm not arrogant like that. And uh, I can honestly say it was, it was a message to Usain. Because at that point in time, Usain hasn't ran the whole season. And we already, Lazan's like mid-season almost. And I think, I don't think anybody really caught that. So I kind of just like, all right, I'm going to chill on that. Because... I don't know what the future holds. I'm putting my neck out there. Right. And I put my neck out there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Hey, moving on. We ran all those nine sevens. Trials. Don't, but not, but let's, not even, let's not even move the trials. Let's remember the awesome 200 you ran. I mean, the 200 came easy for you that year also. You actually dropped a lot of good times in the 200 that year. Well, I didn't even have to run. At nationals, I didn't even have to run the 100 because I was the Diamond League champion from 14. Mm. So I had to buy. So knowing that going into 15, I was like, well, let's run some 200s because in 14, I ran 19.6 with a stellar field. I was only supposed to be a lane filler to be able to bring in, you know, people to watch the race. Like, oh, Justin Galley here and uh, Ash Mead and Lemaitre and all these guys, Tyson Gay. And I end up winning, winning the race with running nine, six, eight. 
the ugliest 968 you ever seen in your life. Man, you almost ran out your lane. I almost <laughs> ran my lane a couple of times in that race. <laughs> I was tight, tight. Uh, were you walking a tightrope? <laughs> so, um, so then we worked on the 200 throughout the season. And then by the time I got to nationals, I was able to run uh, 1957. And uh, to run a 200 that fast feels like amazing. You feel like you're flying, you feel free because you're just holding top end for so long. So it only just, it, it helped go into making my 100 meters faster. So I loved it. I didn't have no pressure of running 100 meters. I can go out there and run this 200. So I made the double. I made the team in the 200 and I also had to buy. So I was on the team for the 100 already. Moving on, I, I, I've heard you said on another podcast that you, you, you never watch the boat documentary or the Netflix series that he had on Netflix. But he's actually talking about the warm-up area and everything. But what was the warm-up area for you? Because Bulk explain what it was for him, watching you warm up and watching everything. What was that for you watching them? Because we heard in, what he was, 13, it was the whoop, whoop. <laughs> yeah. No, that was 12. You saw the whoop, whoop. But in the warm-up area this time, what was it like? I still felt in control. I still felt like I was ready to go out there and, and handle business. Like, this is my moment. Like, I'm at a championship, a world championship. I didn't drop multiple fast times. Um... I didn't run the most nine sevens cons uh, consistently in a season ever by anybody on the planet. So I felt like uh, this was my moment. And even, I still to this day haven't watched the Bolt documentary. So I don't even know what he said about the warm period. I don't know, dog. I, I don't know. Uh, he, I mean, he basically, he basically had his opinion about what he thought and that he felt just as confident as you did. Uh, going into the final. Um, but let's talk about the heats, semis, and then ultimately the final that everybody remembers. What's the crowd like? What's the energy like? Um, I, did, I felt like the energy was a, a normal energy for a championship. It wasn't any different. I remember the prelims, I just got out, ran. It was like the smoothest 992 or whatever I ran. It was easy. Um, for me at that point in time, it was diff more difficult for me to run slow than to run fast. Mm. And I think that it was a double-edged sword for me because going into the semis, um, I had to press the gas a little more than I wanted to. So I ran nine seven seven in the semis. I was being pushed by uh, Mike Rogers. Uh, <laughs> Mike Rogers, <laughs> and he um, he pushed me to the line. But I remember I was like, I ain't let nobody beat me. So I felt him come on. I was like, I just kicked another gear and I just kept on moving through the finish line. And I realized I ran nine seventy seven in the semis. So everybody was like, Oh my god, this guy about to run nine six or something stupid, something crazy, right in the finals. So that's how everybody's thinking. So I come back to the warm-up area. And you, it's so crazy because people will be like, from all different countries, run up to me and be like, please win. Please. <laughs> For us, please win. <laughs> For real, I'm serious. Um, 
So we go into the finals. And we standing back there. I'm in my zone. I'm getting ready for my race. You know, hit my, hit my legendary. All right, let's go. Well, at that point, both still dropping times in the heats and the summer. But you're unbothered by them, correct? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't bothered by the times because, not because I thought I was superior. It was for the fact that I understood how Bolt operated. You know, he is a championship caliber athlete. He's a showman. He's going to show up when it counts the most. And to lose on a grand stage drops his stock. If he's the fastest in the world and considered the winner, the gold medals, the champion, if any time he needs to win, it's this time, that moment. So watching him kind of develop through the rounds and run faster each round, I was like, all right, I know what I'm preparing for. I know that he's going to show up in the finals and I have to show up too. What lane was he in? You remember? Man, I mean, we probably, we were in the middle of the track. So I think we were like, Four and five, I think, maybe. Or five and six, one of those. Mm. And the gunman says on your marks, you get down. This is the moment you've been training for. This is, this is the moment where nobody since an 08 has defeated both in the championship. This is your moment as you so speak. What's going through your head once the, once the gunman says set? It was such an eerie feeling because I was—I never felt like I was a favorite. The last time I felt like I was a favorite was 2005. So that's a long time, but going into 2015. Ten years. Decade. That's a crazy feeling to walk into a stadium and people are favoring you to win this. Gun goes off. Hit my drive phase transition. I'm in front. Do you know Bolt. you're in front? I know I'm in front right then. As Bolt does, he starts hitting them long strides, them long steps. And it's the only person has, I have ever competed against where I see their legs coming before they come. <laughs> like I always, a praying mantis. <laughs> I always heard, like a Clydesdale, I always heard... That I, that's what I look like when I ran, run against people. Like when I'm running people down, like you see my legs coming before you see my whole body. I never felt that <laughs> until that moment. And I think that I went into a feeling of panic. Because it was a moment where I shifted from racing I shifted from competing and I just raced. And I threw technique and strategy out the window. And I was trying to do everything I could to get to the line before he did. Do you think in that year, because you were winning by such huge margins and there was not a feeling of anybody on the side of you, that's why those, seeing those legs coming was very foreign and you didn't know how to react? Do you think this was a strategy by Bolt? Like, I'm not going to give him a feeling of racing me before I have to race him. When he sees me, he'll see me. 
twofold. So yes, to answer that first question, I think it was a foreign feeling for me because through the whole season, I was beating everybody about 10, 15 meters. I was, it was such a gap between me and the field when I really went for it. So it felt weird being at 9.8 low to 9.7 shape, uh, race pace and feeling someone gradually pull up next to you. Um, but I also think that he has implemented that strategy from the moment I beat him in Rome in 2013. If you realize it, from 2013 on, me and Usain never raced in a, in a one-off race around the world, anywhere. We only saw each other in the finals of a championship because you have to. So I think that was a strategy. I don't know if it was on his part or his coach or whoever, but at the end of the day, I didn't get a chance to race him enough to get a feel of how he runs. I only was able to feel it in a finals. So now we at where you fall. You at 10 meters before the line. Everybody see you start to buck, like you said, lose form. You stop competing and you start racing. Come across the line. You realize you didn't win. Now, 13, 14, and 15 had to been some of the greatest years but then you couldn't cap it with this. What does that feel like? Probably was the most embarrassing moment of my competition history. I felt worse than getting second to last at, at Prefontaine in 2004 because I should have won that race. The time I ran in the semis, would have won that race in the finals. The time I ran that semis in 15, would have won the finals in the previous world championship. The time I ran that semis in 15, would have won the finals in 17, two, two years later. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I see exactly what you're saying. So there's certain moments that I couldn't take back. And I remember crossing that finish line in the finals in 2015. And I remember... Usain running, and then he stops, and he looks back. And then right before he does his legendary pose, the way he looked at me was like, bro, you should have won that. <laughs> Real talk. That's what he looked at me. He's like, that was yours to take. <laughs> and you going you to let me have it? Well, I'm going to take it. But I'm going to take it. Yeah, I mean, so it was... I felt like I fell on my face in front of the whole stadium, like flat on my face, bow. And I got up and like, I can't believe I just embarrassed myself like that in front of the world. That's what it felt like in front of the world. And I remember that I, I tried to hold in those emotions as long as I could, because I knew that I had to go through the gauntlet of talking to all reporters as you go up them stairs and you go talk to every newscaster. And, um, I tried to keep it together as long as I could. Then I had to go to the press conference after the race. Had to sit next to Usain and answer questions. And I remember getting in that, uh, that car. 
Because when you, after a championship, you come first, second, third, usually you have to stay like a whole two hours after the meet's done. And I remember getting in that car to go back to the hotel after the stadium. And as soon as I got in that car and I called my parents, I cried like a baby in that car. I cried so hard. Not because I lost. I've been beat by Usain before. It was the fact that I lost. I lost that race. I didn't get beat. I gave it up. And that was a feeling that I'd never, it was a foreign feeling because I'd never experienced that before. I've always been that person who was mentally tough. I was always been that person who, when I, I was clutch, when I had the opportunity to win, I would not relinquish it. It was mine for the taking and I'm going to take it. And at that moment, I realized through all those tears, I physically was out there running, but I emotionally and mentally was not there. And I find, I find that so many athletes operate in that same system. They think that they physically need to get themselves in shape. And that's going to take care of everything when they leave their mental and their emotions at home. And they're not the complete package. And now they're distraught, figuring out, well, shit, I didn't train the best I've ever trained in my life. I don't understand why I lost. I don't understand why I didn't do the best I was supposed to do. And that was a moment that stuck with me all the way through 16, bro. I was depressed. All the way from 15 through 16. When I won and got on the podium in 16 at the Olympics, I did not care about that medal. It didn't mean anything to me because I, I felt like I lost the opportunity that I was never going to get back in 15. Of course. I feel like uh, in 15... If you had beat both at that time, I think it changes the trajectory of everything. Uh, I, I don't know where Bolt was at that time, but I feel like, you know, you hear him talk about how he was tired of the sport and he achieved everything, but I feel like if he loses in that one, we could still be looking at a Usain Bolt and a Justin competing today. I, I don't know. He may differ, but... I think that changes a lot future-wise, but we'll never know. We'll never know. We'll never know. I mean, there's, we'll been, there's been talks where he has come out and said that I've inspired him to work harder, you know, um, and that was him to return to come back and work harder. And I respect that because, like I told you before, when I watched him in 2008, he inspired me. Like, I was like, oh, I want to race that guy. So I think that it was uh, um, that respect of competing against somebody that you know that not only is a threat, but it's somebody that's going to always give their all when they line up against you. You always going, and he knew it, and he said it. He's like, if Gatlin's on that line, I can't play around. And I felt that same way. If Usain's on that line, I didn't think of Usain who ran a, a, a 10-24 down in the Cayman Islands. I thought of Usain, who's going to run 9-5, that he ran in Berlin. And every time I lined up against him, that's the Usain I was competing against. And that's why I always gave my all. That year, even though it was a solid year for you, you still had to run the 200 after all of that. It's just so <laughs> crazy. <laughs> so <laughs> if anybody knows how the world championship is, usually it's the first two days 
of the of the championships. Then the two hundred is later, like way later. <laughs> so you're probably hanging around the training for what the next maybe three to four to five days till the two hundred heats come up. So this is this whole feeling that you're talking about is sitting on you. Now you know you got to go race him again in this two hundred. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At this point, what's that like? Going through the heats, going through the semis, because you get the silver medal that year. You still run a stellar time, even though you get second place. But at this point, this is Bo's favorite race. He was worried about the 100, but his 200 is, 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 is love. So in his head, he's like, whatever. But in your head, do you feel defeated or do you like, I'm going to try to avenge the 100 and upset him in his favorite race? I mean, I gave it my all. I know that. And we know from a track, track uh, standpoint that even though he's going to be well-remembered from running 100 meters, his favorite race and what he really was good at was that 200. Um, all I could do at that point in time was just give him my all. That gun went off, and I ran my ass off around that curve, and I tried to bring it home as much as I could. So I didn't quit. I still went out there and ran like 970-something, you know? So, through all the rounds. But that, that 100 haunted me for a long time. Haunted me. And, um... Couldn't I haunt you after 17. Couldn't haunt you after 17. I mean, it's not about the fact that I came back and some people feel like, oh, you redeemed it. You, you did bad in 15, you came back and you won the world championships in 17. It's a fact that I allowed myself to be put in a, in a situation that normally I would, it would be a different outcome because I knew the kind of person I was. And I think what makes me the champion and the athlete I am today is because when I was put in that situation, I will prevail. I will come out on top. I will find a way to win. I will work hard for it. And in that last 20 meters of that 100 meters and 15, I didn't do that. I let it all go. I even, I even, it was at one point I even was going to be like, man, my foot tripped and I stumbled. My spike caught the track, man. And, oh, man, I lost it. And I realized like, man, come on, dog. Don't even cop out on that shit, dog. You, you let yourself down. Accountability. That's, that's what I had to be accountable. Yeah. And that's the only way I was going to heal from that situation if I was accountable. Because I was going to hold that secret inside like, shit, I really folded. But I'm going to just tell y'all, my, my, toe, my toe stubbed the track. I'm going to hold on that forever. And I can't do that because that's not me. Funny thing is you speak about that. A lot of athletes actually do that. They do the, the, the reverse of what you just did. They'd rather blame something rather than being accountable, not not realizing being accountable will make you stronger. Because when you're accountable, you put it out there so you can actually do what you need to do. Is that what accountability did for you? It is. That's what it did for me. And then I realized, I did some research, talked to some other athletes from different sports. Um, I love extreme sports. I love watching it. It gives me a, a rush, an adrenaline rush. And I talked to a motocross guy and he was like, I was like, well, how do you not, are you not scared that you're going to fall off your bike? He was like, as a, 
as a motocross rider, we all know there's going to be a day where you fall. It's inevitable. There's no one that goes through their whole career and never fall. And I talked to an MMA fighter, and he said, regardless of losing, you have to get in that ring, realize that there's going to be a moment where you are going to get knocked out. And that's what I felt after that. I was like, I can't dwell on the pain that this loss has given me and kind of like, sh like shrink into the shadows. I have to own it. I'm going to lose. But it's a lesson to be learned here. It's a tough lesson, but if I keep going forward and keep working at it and change the narrative, it's going to be a moment where I'm going to win. Now, 17. Well, even though 17 you won, the Olympics was still in 16. But you said you was still upset about 15. Did you train with the same, same mantra as 15 and 16? Or did it weigh on you so heavy, you just knew what you had to do and you just did it? And 16 was a tough year, dog. Um, as I went from 15, I tried to pick myself up and say, you know what? I'm going to just recreate how hard I worked in the beginning of 15. And I'm going to do the same thing going into 16. And the first day of practice, I stepped in a hole and I fractured my ankle. A lot of people don't know that. Like my, my foot blew up to the size of a grapefruit. Unfortunately, I was supposed to be one of the highlights for NBC. And I was supposed to fly out the next day to go film in California. So what am I going to say? Hey, NBC, I can't make it. I just... Uh, uh, fracture my ankle, and uh, I won't be able to make it. So don't worry about be putting me on television and giving me exposure and everything. My dumb ass went out there, flew with a fractured <laughs> ankle. <laughs> Air pressure. You know how your feet get all yeah. swollen when you fly? Yeah. I land, because everybody was like, don't worry, man. It's going to be still shots. You don't have to worry about nothing. You're just going to stand still. You're going to take some shots. Soon as I got out there, we walked onto the track, onto the set. And they had a damn golf cart with all the rigs on it, starting blocks. I had to run. So I'm running on this fractured ankle, and no one knows this. And I made the situation worse. So then now I had to go back, play catch up, heal. And by the grace of God, I still made the Olympic team. I still defended my, Olymp uh, my Olympic 100-meter trials uh, championship. And um, I went on to Rio. But Rio was like a weird feeling because it was like, it was around the time that Zika happened. Mm, I remember Zika. So, <laughs> I remember Zika. So it's with the whole girl, Zika situation. I thought a girl. I remember Zika. She came over, man. Oh, man. <laughs> so you know us, bro. Like, we, they preparing us for Zika. They tell you get deep, put on like bug spray. You got to do all this kind of stuff, right? And um, the rooms were hot. So they have no central air. So you had to sleep with the window open or you was going to bake. But if you slept with the window open, guess who's coming in the window? You know. Boom, there you go. <laughs> so Zika, Zika coming through the window. So I felt like I was, I was, um, 
I felt like I wasn't getting the right food because everything was made in mass at these uh, Olympic villages. It wasn't good food. Steak tastes like leather. Um, I'm up at night making sure I don't get bit by Zika, by mosquitoes to get Zika. <laughs> so I'm always like this. The plumbing was bad in the room, in the rooms that we had. And Mer you know, Team USA always has the best rooms in the village. Um, you only could take a shower for five minutes because if you take a shower longer than five minutes, then your room was going to flood of water. Wow. The plumbing was bad. They told you, if you go to the bathroom, put uh, your uh, used tissue toilet paper into the little pink sanitized bag and they're going to come by and get it. So I'm like, um, so you want me to wipe my ass, <laughs> take that wipe, at, look at it, put it into a, a sanitary bag and then leave it in the room? Nah, I'm flushing this shit down the toilet. Y'all gonna, <laughs> gonna have to fix this plumbing. So I'm, you dealing with all these things. And why I'm bringing it up because usually when you are an uh, Olympian and a lot of people looking at home thinking like, oh, you're getting the creme of the creme. Like you Olympian now? Like they rolling the red carpet out for you. You're getting state of art everything. No, not at all. Getting doo-doo napkins. Tired, sanitation bag. taxed, hungry. And this is even before going into competing. So I was so tired throughout the whole 2016 Olympics. And it's just like, man. And then dealing with that injury, it gave my ankle started flaring up. And then me trying to overcompensate with the other leg it gave me hip issues. And that's what took me into 17. Still banged up from something that happened a whole year prior. At this point in time, I mean, we up to 17. People don't understand, or a lot of athletes don't understand. What was the maintenance or the maintenance cost on your body like? Talk about all these things. How often were you seeing somebody, chiropractor, SARS therapist? What did, what did that cost look like for somebody watching who wonders how important it is to take care of the body going to be an elite athlete? Daily. You get massaged, stretched acupuncture, whatever is necessary for your body to recover so you can keep on performing. So you're looking at the math of... It's a monthly basis. That way it's broken down easier. You're spending between two to $3,000 a month on just maintenance of the body. And that's not including if you are taking a therapist, chiropractor to travel with you. Because now you got to pay for their ticket. And sometimes, depending on what meet you go to, you might have to fit the bill for their hotel as well. That also includes uh, food. So it's, I always looked at it as an investment. At the end of the day, for me to be at optimal performance level, I have to make sure that I had a team around me to keep me there. And that, that's the thing. That's what I wanted you to say because I think in, a, in our sport, you more so look, athletes more look how to save a dollar when they make a dollar to keep making money and don't understand the investment behind putting it in your body because once you're injured, you spend the money anyway. You go and you're like, oh, we got to go to this massage therapist. You're going this amount of time. But if you are proactive, to the listeners listening, and you spend the type of money. This is somebody who was in the sport 
20 years, understand maintenance is just as important as training, correct? Absolutely. So spending that money is, is a fraction to the, who you can be or what you can be or your earning power later on. But I just wanted to put that out there for any athletes listening to, you know, take care of your body, get those massages, those chiropractic work, you know what I mean? And I, I break it down and I simplify it for young athletes. When they think like, oh, that's too much. Oh, they charging this, this much for a massage? That's crazy. I was like, think about it like this. If this person comes to you and says, hey, if you give me $1,000 right now to make sure your body is good, and you go to a dominant race and win $10,000, that's a no-brainer. Yeah, I'm giving up that 1000 every time. There you go. You give up that 1000 10 times, that's 100K without a contract. There you go. So it's definitely, so now we at 17. Olympics is over. You're in the fall of 17. I remember this year because your training in the fall didn't go as planned again. <laughs> so at this point, you're like, bro, this is like two years. I, I, I'm trying to get my 15 on back on, and stuff is in your way. Talk about that. Wow. Going into 17, I was beat up and battered. Uh, ankle was healing. I still had scar tissue in it, but I, I can move on it better. Um, but like I said, I started having residual pain in my hip, in my hip flexor. So I couldn't get the, the, uh, the Gatlin start that I was known for. So it, it would give me pain. It would make my hip feel awkward at trying to be more ballistic from the start. Mm. So I had to come up with another plan. I had to change things around. I had to not be the best starter in the world and figure out how I can run with the pack and have more top-end speed. And in my mind, I'm thinking to myself like, well, damn, how am I going to do that? Because usually athletes are very, um, they're about habits and rituals, right? And now you're telling me that I have to be a whole different athlete and still try to be successful. Then I realized, I looked back and said, if you look back at my earlier races from like 2004 and five, I wasn't the best starter in the world, but I was able to run people down. I had top end speed. So I started watching old videos of myself. I would sit in bed and start watching old videos of myself and, and reteaching myself that I don't have to worry about getting out in front. It's all about what I'm gonna, how am I gonna get to the finish line? And that's what I started working on throughout that whole season leading up to the world championships in 15 and 17. True. At this point, this is the thing. Coleman is starting to come along at this point. Young Coleman, very ferocious Coleman. Hungry Coleman, uh, young kid, relentless, volunteer also though. Volunteer. Shout, out, <laughs> shout out to Coleman, shout out to University of Tennessee, go Vols, <laughs> Vols for life. Uh, what was that, what was that like knowing you had a young volunteer who, who also looks up to you if I'm not mistaken? He looked up to you at that point because he would be the second coming after breaking the NCAA record, it would be almost like the second coming of the next thing out of Tennessee. I was, 
I guess maybe age was showing because I was proud and I didn't want to be proud. Like, Justin, you can't be proud of this little motherfucker. He's your competition. You got to beat him. But I was so proud and I would still communicate with him on a daily basis. And even when he was in college, I would say, look, man, this SET championship means something. This NCAA championship you about to, you about to win means something. You know what I mean? And he would take it and apply it. Now, I'm not saying that my words changed and made him who he is, but I enjoy the fact that I was able to talk to somebody and they was able to execute and be successful with it. That made me proud, you know? Um, and so when I had to race against him, it was conflicting emotions sometimes. I was like, yeah, that's my boy right there. But at the same time, it's like, I got to line up against his motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, so um, he was hot, man. He just come off a great... Uh, uh, NCAA campaign, he was running good times, ran like nine eights already, um, 19s, and um, he was ready for the, he was ready for, I, I beat him at the Nationals to make the team, but I knew that he was going to come back stronger than ever because he had that dog in him. He don't like to lose like I don't like to lose. So going into the world championships, he was ready, Doug. He was ready. And uh, he was so ready that when we was going through the rounds and we went through the semis, Usain came over to me after when we was in the, uh, the cool down area putting your clothes back on. And Usain looked at me and says, yo, who's this little USA motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me like, yo. <laughs> I was like, yo. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, for real? I was like, yeah, dog. He, he legit, dog. He legit. <laughs> so I think that knowing that at that point in time, you know, because for it was foreign for me and Usain at that moment. And I realized that because usually the championship, the only person I had to worry about was Usain. The only person he had to worry about was me. And we sitting there talking about him. <laughs> so then I realized, I was like, damn. I was like, this is a perfect opportunity for me. Hold on. If he's worried about him, then I can focus on my race strategy, which is not getting out in front, but only work on my top end and close. I tested it at nationals and I was able to get the victory against Coleman. So I know it works. I didn't know I was going to get lane eight <laughs> compared to them in three and four. So I didn't feel them at all, but I just stuck to my race strategy and my race pattern. And if you look at the race at 50 meters, I was in fifth. And then I hit that. Oh, you used the Jamaicans. I hit the. Whoop, whoop. I hit the. Oh, zoot, zoot. So by 50 meters, <laughs> I had such amazing closing speed that track and field news charted it. So they put all three of us in a line next to each other to show how I maintain my velocity going from 50 meters to the finish line. And what made me win that race? Mm -hmm. Man, that 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 was amazing because you you clutched it. It was close. Nobody, everybody at home was like, "Did he get it?" It looked like you got it, but then when it hit the screen, it was like, "Oh, he got it!" I know. Uh, my family, they they love you a lot. That my kids were jumping on the couch. They was so, <laughs> they were so happy for you, but uh. Yeah, I mean, what, what was that like? You come through the line, you win worlds, 
you're back. Like, this is the first gold medal in an outdoor championship since 2004, correct? Since 2005. Five. Yeah. World champion. Yeah. Yeah. 12 years later. 12 years later. Unheard of. Crazy. Usually people are gone, long gone, retired, and become coaches or whatever after that, you know? Um, Yeah, I think you're the only guy that got like two... Two different sets of fans. You have fans from my generation. This is like 40, 35, 40, 45. And then you have people like kids, like teenagers. You have two generations of fans. I do. I'm, I, I'm, I'm so happy about that. Uh, I'm grateful, man. Because it's hard to capture the young generation's attention. And for me to go out here and come back into a sport and still be on top. And the way I did it, I never gave up. And I think the young generation witnessed that. Because a lot of them don't even, they probably never seen videos of me ever running against Maurice Green. No. You see what I'm saying? Most of the kids don't even know who Maurice Green is. Exactly. So for me to, I always tell people that I'm the bridge that, that kind of like brings the generations together. I raced against Maurice. I raced against Usain. I've raced against Coleman. The funny thing is, you've beaten all of them, which is not just race. You've done something, and I mean, I'm pretty sure somebody is going to probably look it up after they see this that I don't think anybody has ever done where they climb Mount Everest, which is the world championship, twice. It's hard enough to do it back to back, but 12 years in between is something Muhammad Ali-esque, to go and go away from the sport and come back and still be a champion. That's, that's something, that's a feat that's very hard just on itself, but that's one of the reasons why I feel like you can't even call somebody else the next Justin Gatlin because the story is just so wine roady. Like you can't. <laughs> nobody can follow that same blueprint. Most people probably won't even make it. They will break at some point. So, man, that's kudos to you, man. I, I it's amazing that, that 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 that's a feat that you've had. But now back to it. Then the infamous or the famous bow that everybody asked and I think you answered it on a, on a few shows but now on your show Ready Set Go let's fully explain you come through the line you're fighting not only against Bolt but you do this because you're fighting against who else so before we before we even get there I want everybody to realize that sometimes when you're running a lot of times when you're running you know, you, all you can do is rely on your race strategy and hope you hope hope that you can win, right? Um, everything leading up from the first round, where I get out like the old Justin Gatlin, and I kind of go into the race, and then in the semis, I I got second on purpose because I didn't want to show them and show Usain and all the other top dogs that I had closing speed. I didn't want them to be aware of it going into the finals. So by design, I unleashed it in the finals, and no one was ready for that. Mm. So when I crossed the line, 
And are we what are we talking about? The sh- or are we talking about the bow? Which one are we talking about? Sure, we talk about whatever one you want to talk about first. <laughs> I think the sh came first. The sh came first, but the sh came because it was a retaliation to the to the crowd and to the media, man. Um, people don't know what that's like. Like I think people watching on TV, they couldn't hear. Explain when you say the crowd. I think the, they get it with the media because we at home heard the London media what they said and how they talked. But explain about the crowd. Vicious. But it was like a, a pinpoint accuracy of viciousness. It wasn't against Team USA. It was against Justin Gatlin. And um, when I went into the prelims, and they went down the, down the line, and lane one, lane two, lane three, and they call your names, and they got to me, I hear like a, a low boo. Like, I'm like, damn, what the hell is that? Like, y'all... Damn, it's like that, you know? I was like, maybe just that night. So then, semis the next night comes. And the boos were louder as they went down the line. Lane one, lane two, lane three. And they get to my lane. Boo! You know, like it was louder. It was like trending. And then as we get to the finals, lane three was like Usain. So lane three. Like the stadium just erupted with cheers. Ah, it was deafening. And as they went down the lane and they got to lane eight where I was, the energy that they used to cheer for Usain was the same energy they used to boo me. Wow. It was deafening. It was, it was the loudest boo you could ever heard in your life. And I always thought to myself, if I ever got booed, I'll be mortified. I think I would probably would have shit in my pants or pissed in my pants how unnerving it would have been, right? Um, but for whatever reason, it had the adverse effect on me. It made me dial in. It made me focused. It made me say, all right, motherfuckers, I'm going to show y'all who I am. And as I went out there, got down the blocks, and I ran, I stuck to my race strategy, stuck to my race plan. And as I got closer to the finish line, I realized I was winning. And I got that same feeling I did in 04 when I was like, you about to win it all! <laughs> so as I came across the finish line, I won. It was close, right? Not close enough that I didn't know. I knew I won. But close to where people were watching. and. As the scoreboard was there, it was blank for a while. And people were just looking. And you could see like Coleman running past the scoreboard like, ah, I got that thing. Show my name. Show my name, please. <laughs> and then you could tell Usain knew that he didn't win, but I think he thought he got second. So he was like, ah, man. And then my name pops up, right? And I was like, ah. Everyone, the stadium gasped. The loudest gasp you ever heard. <gasps> and before they could even boo, I said, shh, and I shushed 100,000 people all at once. That was the most powerful thing I ever felt in my life because <laughs> it showed to me that if you believe in who you are, it doesn't matter how many people are against you. Believe who you are and stick to your guns. 
and go out there and fight your fight. And at the end of the day, you'll be okay with whatever the outcome is going to be because you are you. And that's what I felt. And so as I shushed the whole crowd and they were just like flabbergasted, my next move was I paid homage and I bowed to Usain. And I think he was beside himself because as you see him in the video, he looks, he goes to embrace me and he's like, he looks down and is like, what are you doing? What is this? Yeah. <laughs> What's going on? But the reason why I did that is because it was two things. I had to acknowledge Usain not only as a champion, but as somebody who has influenced me to be a better competitor. I would never have become the competitor I am without going toe-to-toe with him throughout the years. And I knew that it was his last race of his career, his last 100 meters that he'll ever run ever again. And for whatever strange reason, I didn't want to upset that. I wanted to win, but I didn't want to take that away from him. And that was me paying homage to him and thanking him for always being and always showing up as you saying and never backing down. Because if he did, I was there to, to overcome. He pushed me and I thank him for that. Shout out to Boat, man. You did a lot for the sport, man. Shout out, shout out definitely to Boat. He grew our sport so many and continues to still represent the sport whenever he's seen. So Definitely shout out to Bo. But uh I mean I don't know. I don't know what people thought. I never asked what people thought about it. There I, I it probably was whispers of mixed feelings because a lot of people felt like, you just won, dog. Oh hell no. You know, like why are you doing that? F him. But then there's people out there who looked and was like, oh, that's foreign. Like, sprinters are not supposed to be humble. Sprinters are not supposed to have to be gracious. We're not supposed to even acknowledge our competitors. And I think when I did that, it took people back. And then from that moment, like you saw it was a, a change in the narrative. Like a lot of people start attacking the boers. A lot of people start attacking the British media and saying, how dare you come out here and talk bad about somebody like that. Y'all are supposed to have a neutral stance on where you stand as a reporter. And then all that changed. They put security on me. The moment I, after I won, I had a security guard follow me for the rest of the world championships. <laughs> like a real security guard, like packing, ex-Marine, like that kind of guy. And as we walked through the streets of London, out of all those boos, you would have thought I would encounter some kind of negativity. And all I encountered was, I apologize for my people. That, that was very tasteless and tacky of them. And as I walked down the street, same thing. Forgive us. I apologize for the way we acted. I don't know them people. Those are not my countrymen. That's all I got. It was the opposite of what I felt in the stadium. It shows how... Being humble could overcome even 100,000 people, even when it's so easy to fight fire with fire. My grandfather used to always tell me, you fight fire with water. And that's exactly what you did. 
Because if you fight fire with fire, it only brings more fire. But when you brought water, it was foreign. They didn't know how to understand it, and it brought more embarrassment to those people than it did to you. So, you know, cut on that. But in Bo's last race, you were not the only one to beat him in the championship. I think Coleman also sometimes gets forgotten. <laughs> he got the silver medal. Shout out to Coleman. So he beat Bo in his last race too, not to diminish Bo, but it always gets credited to you. We just want to give Coleman his credit also. But Coming home, what was that like, man? After that championship. Amazing. The moment I even got back to the hotel, like I didn't sleep because I was doing so much PR and media stuff that was going to be put on the air back in the United States because we were so many hours behind. So I was still up like three o'clock in the morning doing stuff back at home. Because you got to realize like how America looks and operates on certain things. We look at things as team oriented. So me winning wasn't a victory for Justin Gatlin, and that wasn't the news. It wasn't like, oh, Justin Gatlin beat you saying it was USA brought that gold medal back to America. 100%. We have the throne. And I'm proud of that because when I put on that jersey and that uniform, I'm representing my country. It's not about me anymore. It's about what our team is going to do, what our country is here for. Okay. So now, in 17, what are the new toys we buy for ourselves? Because <laughs> <laughs> if anybody knows you, I know Chester works in a reward system. I could only buy something new if I win something new. And I think that's how you keep a lot of your money. <laughs> you your money. <laughs> You're right. Treat yourself. You know what I mean? Right. I I'm not that kind of person like if I get beat, I got to drown my sorrows in liquor or I got to be like, man, I'm sad, man. Let me go buy a new car to make me happy. I don't know. If you sad, you get your shit out of, you get your shit out the mud the right way. Yeah. That's how I feel. So my treat to myself was a new sports car. I bought myself an i8. At that point in time, I did a lot of research. It was between R8 and a Ferrari. I want something I can drive on a daily basis. And I want something that when I ride down the road, I ain't going to see another one of mine. <laughs> this is true. I like that. <laughs> so that's what, that's what I did. And then on top of that, I bought a new house. You know, it was that time, you know. Um, but I gave myself incentives. I said, look, we go out here. We do what we're supposed to do. We gain the bonuses. I did the math. I never say I'm going to get something and I can't afford it. If I can afford it and it fits within the means of my budget and how I live, I'm going to get it. And I build myself up to that. 100%. I think athletes take note. It's incentive base. If you make your bonus, then you treat yourself. Not, I lost, I'm going to go spend all this money because it gives you a false sense of security of feeling good because now you'll run out of cash. So incentive base, I always think that's something that the younger guys could learn from, from the older guys like, like yourself and how you handled your money. You know what I mean? Uh, I always think that was a good practice you had. I'm trying to get you to teach my kids. Step-by-step, <laughs> 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 uh, step-by-step, man. Step-by-step. So, uh, 
After that, 17, we have something new. New that's about to come. No, not yet. Like uh, going into 18 is when I think I started coaching you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was weird for me. It was, it was really weird. I remember. It was weird for you. It was weird for me. <laughs> I remember when you called me and asked me. It was, it was so weird because it was like, yeah, man, I'm going to need a new coach for this year. I'm going to tell you why I'm going to need a behind new coach. And I was like, well, man, I think started naming off these different coaches. And I think over a couple of days you thought about it and then you called back. He's like, yeah, it's you. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah. He said, I'm going to go over there back with you and Coach Brooks. And, and that's what you did. So when I told you that, it came from a place of belief. And what I mean by that is you were one of the first athletes who saw my potential and knew how fast I could run from watching me run at practice. And you was like, man, you just ran such and such. Like, I know what you can do. So that always stayed in my mind. So when the moment came that I had the opportunity to work with you, I took it. So, but that's a story for another time, man. We're going we gonna to talk about it on the next one. That's what we're going to do. And we're going to show the world how our partnership have, has came to be and what it evolved to. Thank you.